just a reminder, this coming Saturday, we have our um, game night. So if you're planning on coming to that, it's this coming Saturday, uh, our game night, starting at 6.30, I believe. Uh, so bring your favorite game, bring some snacks. Uh, it's always a good time of fellowship. Uh, sometimes you really get to know someone when you get around a board game. So bring your favorite board game for that. Psalm 69. Let's bow for a word of prayer before we jump in. Heavenly Father, I pray that those words that we've just confessed in song would be the cries of our heart. That we are hiding in the, in the billows of life as the sea over me swells. I would hide in thee. And I would, even as Todd reminded us, see the greatness of my enemy. And then I would be reminded all the more of the greatness of my God. You are my comfort. You are my cleft in the rock. You bring me close. You care. You protect. And we are hiding in you. I pray even as we look at this psalm this evening, Psalm 69, that we would be comforted with the reality of who you are. We would be reminded of the promises that you have given us, that we would see your faithfulness, that you'd be honored in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 69. It's 36 verses. Psalm 69. Follow along as I read. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up on my, to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I've come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gates speak against me, and I am the song of drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you. O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me, not, let me be delivered from those who hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. 
and do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor, does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Psalm 69 takes us on quite the journey of emotion. As you start there at the beginning, it's, it's cry, David is crying out for salvation. Save me, O God. You work your way through the psalm and, and you see him struggling with the situation in which he is in. He feels surrounded and attacked by his enemies. He feels overcome. Even his family has abandoned him. And yet the psalm ends with David praising the Lord. As you come to Psalm 69, it is an individual lament. And that's kind of a pattern that we've seen with laments throughout the psalms as we've come to them. Lament starts by pouring your heart out to the Lord, and yet it always ends by coming back around to the truth of who God is and what He has promised and what He has done. That's what we find here in this. It starts with David pouring out his heart before the Lord. Honestly, he's very raw here. And yet it works around. He comes out praising the Lord on the other side. It's an individual lament. And yet you may have noticed as we worked our way through there, there's several verses that stand out. In fact, it's in the Lord's good providence that we're in this psalm this evening. Because on Sunday morning, we'll be in John 19, where one of these verses is fulfilled in the New Testament. And we'll see that. In fact, except for Psalm 22, Psalm 69 is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament passage. Eight times, I believe it is. It's quoted in the New Testament. Many of those times have messianic implications, looking 
to Christ. As you start out here in Psalm 69, it starts with David's situation, a cry for salvation. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I've come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. David is a man. He's in a situation. He is being overwhelmed. He is being overcome. Verse 3, I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail when I wait for my God. Many of us probably know that feeling. I am weary with crying. Just this week, I was actually talking to someone. And as we were talking, they kept talking about how, how they couldn't see clearly because their eyes were so sore because they'd gone through something this week that, that caused them to go through a difficult time. And they, they had cried a lot. And they said, I've been crying so much that I can't, I can't even see clearly. My eyes hurt. Many of us have been there, have we not? We know that feeling. When your throat is dry from crying, your eyes are burning, your eyes fail while I wait for my God. And yet, as we'll see as we work our way through this psalm, even when our eyes fail, even when our faith fails and falls short, even then God never fails. Our situation does not dictate who God is. This is where David finds himself. He is overcome. He is weary. He is worn down. What is the situation? Why has this come upon David? Well, in verse 4, we see that he is innocent. So whatever this is, he's being wrongly accused. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the haters of my head. They hate me without a cause. There was no need for them to hate me. I am innocent in this. That phrase, the beginning of verse 4, is one of the times is quoted in the New Testament, those who hate me without a cause, is quoted in John 15.25. Jesus says that, I am hated without cause. I am innocent in this, and yet they are more than the hairs of my head. There are many who are jumping on, coming against me. They are mighty who would destroy me. His enemies are many and his enemies are mighty. They're my enemies wrongfully. Though I've stolen nothing, still I must restore it. They're demanding that I restore something that I haven't stolen. I am innocent in this. In verse 5, we see kind of here a, a moment of honesty. He says, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. He said, I, I'm innocent in this. Again, here in verse 5, he recognized, yeah, yeah, you know me, God, and I know my own heart. I, I, I very well could have done that. I am a sinner. To the core, I am a sinner. He acknowledges the fact that he is a sinner, and yet, I'm innocent in this. In fact, verse 5 is, is probably a testimony to his innocence and his very honesty. He's willing to admit, God, I, I know my heart. I am a sinner. You know me, God. But in this, I am innocent. Verse 6, let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. 
Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Here David's main concern is that may I not bring shame to your name and to your people. Also, may I not drive away those who would seek you. As I am going through this difficult time, may I not be a stumbling block for those who follow you or those who would seek you. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. It's not that David is ashamed of God. Rather, the idea here is that his faithfulness to God has brought shame on him from others, from a worldly perspective. His persecution is because of his faith. It's for your sake that I have borne reproach. It's because I worship you. In fact, verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's children. Those closest to him have even turned their backs on him. Not necessarily that, that those closest to him, his family and his friends, have joined in the persecution. But for fear of being associated with him, they have, they have distanced themselves from him. You may already start to see the messianic imagery in this song. It's all throughout this psalm. Even here, it's not expressly stated, but it's in the background. As we've been working through John, we see this very thing as Jesus' disciples abandon him as he's going to the cross. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Verse 9, this is another time when we see this quoted in, scripture, in the New Testament in John 2.17. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. You might remember Jesus as he chases out the money changers in the temple, as he cleanses the temple. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is quoted there. John 2.17. And the disciples there recognize that this is quoted of Jesus. In John 2.17, they recognize that's, that's from the Old Testament. David here in this psalm is going through all of this because of his faith. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. Not necessarily zeal uh, in David's situation. It doesn't have to be just limited to the temple itself. In fact, the temple is not around at this time. But the idea is zeal for the things of the Lord. Where he dwells. Zeal for you and for your worship and the things of you has eaten me up. That is why I am persecuted. Because of my faith and my zeal for you. In fact, the next line is also quoted in the New Testament in Romans 15.3. Paul quotes this, And the reproaches of those who approach you have fallen on me. Again, 
Those who have set themselves against God have taken aim at David. My zeal for you has drawn those who hate you to aim their arrows at me. They can't get to you, but they can get to me. It's fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. Even as he responds in honesty and sincerity, as he is mourning and crying out to the Lord, even then they are mocking him. I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, and that became my reproach. They're mocking me for them. I made sackcloth my garment. I am mourning, and I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me. Those who sit in the gate would be those with authority, the elites of society. They speak against me, and I'm the song of the drunkard. He is mocked by those at the top of society and those at the bottom of society. Everybody is against him. But he doesn't back down. He's not dissuaded. But as for me, my prayer is to you. O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. In the acceptable time. That's a hard prayer to pray. And in your timing, it's a lot easier than my timing. (laughs) How about right now? It would be a good time, Lord, to deliver me. But even as he's crying out, he's in the midst of this, oh Lord, in the acceptable, in your time, in the multitude of your mercy, Not because I deserve it, but because of who you are. Because of who I know you to be. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. Hear me and save me. That's the heart of his prayer. Save me, God. See the situation in which I am. Hear my cry and save me. Here in verse 14, he goes back to the imagery at the beginning. Verses 1 and 2. Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me. Let not the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. This is a serious situation. The pit, that's the idea of Sheol, or the place of death. He finds himself in a place where where death is a real threat. All these people are around him. He is overcome. And death, it even seems, is coming. In fact, you can kind of see as as, as it it almost feels as you're reading this psalm as if you can feel the tension rising. He kind of speeds up his prayer. In fact, he says in verse 17, Hear me speedily. Right? In verse 13, he prayed the real spiritual thing in your time, God. Now in verse 17, but, you know, hear me speedily, God. (laughs) Come on. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good, your covenant-keeping love, your faithful love. It is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. 
You are faithful and you are merciful. Do not hide your face from me. We've talked about how in the Psalms, that picture of of turning your face towards someone is to show approval. And to turn your face away is basically what we would say turning your back on someone. That's what he's crying here. Do not hide your face from me. Don't turn your back on me. I am in trouble. Hear me speedily, God. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me from my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Again, he goes back to, you know who I am, God. You know my heart. You know my reproach. You know my shame. You know my dishonor. You know my situation. My adversaries are all before you, God. I, I know that you see this. You can almost see David struggling with his theology, what he knows to be true, and what he practically sees around him. He's reminding himself time and time again, God, you see this. I, I know you see this. You tell me you see this. You tell me you hear me. You tell me that you, have, that, that you are faithful. You tell me that you are merciful. That's what I'm hoping in, God. But as I look around, I don't feel it. I don't see it. My adversaries are all before you. I know that you see. Reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. Not only is he suffering, he is suffering alone. We saw that. Back in verse 8. His enemies have all coming against him, and you would expect that, but, but his family is all. Those closest to him have all abandoned him. He's suffering, and he's suffering alone. Those who should comfort him have turned on him. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is the, the verse that we'll see in our passage on Sunday in John 19, 28-29. As Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, I thirst. And they sick up the vinegar to him. You know that, that vinegar, that sour wine that they gave Jesus? That he put to his lips? That, that wasn't meant to quench his thirst. That was meant to prolong his suffering. It was meant to prolong his suffering. In fact, everything that they do on that cross is meant to prolong his suffering. To make it as long as possible. And that's the idea here. They gave me gall, it's a bitter herb. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. They gave me bitter herb and bitter drink. Those who should comfort me... They're adding to my pain. They're prolonging my suffering. They're not satisfying my thirst. They're making it worse. Let their table become a snare before them. Here in verses 22 to to 28, it's it's really, as you read it, it's almost eye-popping some of the things that David says in here. I mean, he gets down to verse 27. 
Add iniquity to their iniquity. Let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and, let, and not be written with the righteous. He's basically praying, condemn them to hell. I mean, this is some very raw things that David is saying here. This is imprecatory prayer here. Contrasted with David's innocence, they are guilty. And this is what they deserve. David is here praying for justice. Give them what they deserve and deliver me, God. Verses 22 to 23 is again quoted in the New Testament, Romans 11, 9 to 10. Paul applies this passage to the Jews of his day whose hearts have been hardened. Let their table the table would normally bring people together. What would normally be a place where you sit comfortably. Let it be a snare before them. And their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. Again, verse 25, quoted in the New Testament, Acts 1.20, speaking of Judas. Why? Why is David praying all of these things? Verse 26. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Because they attack your people. And yet what is probably most shocking about verse 26, it's a line that catches us by surprise because here we see that the sufferer's suffering seems to be at the hand of God. They persecute me, but notice how he describes himself. The one that you have struck. The sufferer has been struck by God. They talk of the grief of those you have wounded. The sufferer here has been wounded by God. David here acknowledges God's sovereignty even in his suffering. It's reminiscent of Job, what we see here. You might also take your mind to Isaiah 53. Who's wounded for our transgressions. And it pleased the Lord to crush him. They persecute the ones you have struck. They talk of the grief of those you have wounded. David's already proclaimed his innocence back at the beginning. And yet here he recognizes that even in this, what he's going through... God is sovereign. I may not understand it. I may not even be able to wrap my mind around it. I may never understand the full scope of what is going on here. But this I know, that you have done this. And yet notice that whatever God is doing here does not take away the guilt of those who are attacking. They are guilty for their choices. They are guilty for their lies, for their persecution. They persecute the ones you have struck and talk the grief of those you have wounded. 
So add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Verse 27 and 28, as I mentioned, plainly, very plainly, speaks of the end of the one who rejects God. It's it's a hard passage to, to read. How could you say something like that? And yet, in a sense, it's almost an act of mercy in its bluntness. Because the one reading this has to come face to face with the end of the one who rejects God. This is your end if you reject God. You'll be blotted out from the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. They are confronted right up front with their end. In fact, David can endure their persecutions because he has an eternal perspective here. He can endure their temporal temporal, uh, persecution because he has an eternal perspective. Those who are persecuting him would do well to also have that eternal perspective. This is your end if you keep on this path. In fact, it's this perspective in verse 28 and 27 that then leads David back to praise in verse 29. He's thinking on this. And he's meditating on on where will these who are attacking me, who are against me, who are threatening my life, who are lying about me, where does that end? They'll be blotted out of the book of the living. They won't be written with the righteous. But I have hope. And that brings him back around to praising God. In verse 29 here, he returns to his original request. I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. In fact, you can almost, as you're you're reading it, you almost sense the change in David's... uh, You almost sense a calmness that comes over him at this point. As you get to verses 27 and 29, you can almost... See him alone in his house as he's praying this, pouring his heart out before God. He's pounding on the table. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. And he's meditating on that. And he calms. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Regardless of my circumstances, I know that they will turn out for good. I I would like my circumstances to change. But my circumstances do not change what is true and what is right and who God is. And so I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving because I have hope. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull which has horns and hooves. Faithfulness is better than empty sacrifice. This is something we've seen back in uh, Psalm 52, I think it was. The same idea. It's not that 
sacrifice is wrong. It's commanded by God in the Old Testament for his people at that time. They are to do that. And yet what this is, is a recognition by David that it's not the act of the sacrifice that satisfies. It's the heart behind it. And so I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. I will keep a right heart regardless of my circumstances. And look at verse 32. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your heart shall live. What was one of David's fears as he's going through this? That he would lead those who who follow God, who believe in God, that he would lead God's people astray as he's going through this. And that he would keep those who would believe away from God. It's back in verse 6. At the very beginning, he cries out, Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, let them not be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. What's the answer to that? How does he keep from leading them astray in the midst of his sorrow and his mourning? I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This is the answer to David's fear in verse 6, that his suffering would not uh, be used to cause shame. The answer is to praise the Lord. And as he praises the name of God with a song, as he magnifies him with thanksgiving, even before his situation is fixed, even in the midst of his suffering, as he praises God, the humble, those who follow God, will see this and they will be glad. They'll be comforted. And not only that, but you who seek God, your heart shall live. David's faithfulness will encourage others to faithfulness. Can you see his mindset changing as he's meditating on this, as he's praying through this? His mindset is changing from this is something that could lead others astray to this is something that God could use to bring others to him. This is something that God could use to encourage others. As I respond rightly to this situation, others will be encouraged for that. For the Lord hears the poor. He goes back to verse 29. He says, I am poor and sorrowful, and the Lord will hear me. The Lord hears the poor. He does not despise his prisoners. Again, the idea of God's sovereignty, even through this, his prisoners. So let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. He's transitioning now from personal praise, I will do this, to inviting everyone to join me in doing this. Let heaven and earth praise him the seas and everything that moves in them, for he is worthy. Why? Verse 35, for God will save Zion. He will build the cities of Judah and they, that, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. He ends by focusing on God's promises to Abraham and to David. He will save Zion. 
He will build the cities of Judah as he promised. And they will dwell in the land as he promised. They will possess it just as he promised. And the descendants of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. God will fulfill his promises. And what a way to end. As you start at the beginning of this psalm and David finds himself mired down in this miry clay. He is drowning. The floods are over and he is overcome. Death seems to be closing in on him. There seems to be no hope. And yet, he prays. He cries out to God. And look where he ends. He is reminding himself of the promises of God. This is what God has said. And being reminded of those promises. Being reminded of eternity. And what waits for those who are opposed to him and what waits for those who follow God. That eternal perspective. That faith in God's faithfulness gives him the strength to sing. Even here in the midst of everything that's going on, he ends by focusing on God's promises. Again, as you work your way through that psalm, even maybe so now that we've gone through it, looking back, it's, it's hard not to see the messianic images in this psalm. A greater David who is innocent, who is crushed by the Father, who drinks that bitter wine, and yet who's blessed by God and rises from the dead as we know. This psalm points us to God's faithfulness. It reminds us of the promises that he has given us. And it's just as applicable to us today. We may not have promises of land. But we have a promise of eternity. We have a promise that all things will be made new. We have a promise for those of us who are in Christ that he will complete in us what he has begun. That we will be glorified. Even as David looks to in this psalm for a little bit of hope, we have promised that justice will be done. The wicked will stand before a holy God and justice will be done. And God will be glorified in his justice and he will be glorified in his love. We have hope that all things work together for good. We have hope. So cling to the promises of God. Remember who your God is. Remember what he has promised in the midst of of everything that is going on in life. Remember everything that God has promised. And this psalm specifically calls us not just to remember what God has promised, but this song 
And all the fulfilled prophecy calls us to look not just to what God has promised, but look what he has done and the cross of Jesus Christ. Look what he has promised and look what he has done. This is a heavy psalm for the first 28 verses. And yet it's a glorious psalm. It's a hope-filled psalm. It's a psalm that calls us with David to praise him. To remember who our God is. Do not forget who your God is. With that on our minds,